We're going to continue our study this morning in the Gospel of John. We will begin chapter 6. So if you would, open your Bibles. John chapter 6, we will look at verses 1 through 15. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient to have for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Father, please prepare our hearts now to receive your living, active word. May the body of Christ this morning be greatly edified, Holy Father. We pray for anyone here who is yet dead in their sins, unregenerate, that you would bring to life through your spirit, by your divine work. A new relationship birthed by you, by grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now, in John chapter 6, to the fourth sign miracle that asserts the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that He is God in the flesh. Thus far, we've witnessed the sign miracle in chapter 2 of Jesus turning water to wine. We witnessed the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. And chapter 5, we looked at the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, which Jesus commanded to rise, take up your bed, and walk. And here now in chapter 6, we see sign miracle number 4, the feeding of the 5,000. Now after the healing of the man in chapter 5, Jesus followed it up with a discourse of his deity. A message regarding himself as to who he is, the very Son of God, the Son of Man. The feeding of the 5,000 will also be followed up with a discourse, Christ regarding himself as the very bread of life. The results of which we'll, we will witness in the weeks to come, 
is that the mass, the masses rather that fo followed him, will depart. Spiritual defectors will be revealed. We, what, we, what we will learn through that is that Christ not only calls true disciples to himself, but he also attracts false disciples. God calls his own to himself. But in the process, there are those who are attracted to Jesus Christ outwardly, as we will see. Our focus this morning is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, all of which you are very familiar with. This miracle of the Lord, other than the resurrection, is the only miracle that is mentioned in all four Gospels. John records only certain miracles. He calls these miracles signs. Now a sign points to something greater than itself. If you want to go to Los Angeles, you get on Interstate 5, you head north. You see a sign that says Los Angeles. It points you to Los Angeles. You don't get out, sit under the sign, lean on it, proclaiming that we've arrived. That po sign points you to something greater than itself. These signs, these miraculous signs, pointed to something greater than themselves. And that was the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who performed them. At the conclusion of John's Gospel, his summary is as follows. John chapter 20, verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is a fundamental verse that is, in fact, the very key to this entire Gospel. Written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, John chapter 6 marks the watershed of Jesus' public ministry. This is the dividing line of acceptance and rejection. We will see an outward manifestation of abandonment and increased opposition. After the miraculous feeding... In verse 51, John chapter 6, we see an allusion to Christ's impending death. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And from that point, the number of so-called disciples greatly diminish. And then the controversy with the Pharisees will grow increasingly bitter. Chapter 5, we witnessed the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And that act stirred up pure persecution by the Jews as Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath. They accused him of being a Sabbath violator. Jesus goes on to declare equality with the Father. So they pursued to murder him more intensely because not only did he heal on the Sabbath, he what? Proclaimed to be equal with God. Equality with God is to proclaim deity of oneself. So from chapter 5, verse 17 to verse 47, Jesus gives a lengthy reply regarding the fact that he is indeed God. And after facing such hostility, Jesus left from Jerusalem and he headed north into Galilee. Now there's four points that we want to look at this morning in this message. They're outlined for you on the bulletin. Four points of focus in the feeding of the 5,000. The first point we see in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus attracts hostile enemies as well as false disciples. Number two, verses six through nine, Jesus will test his true disciples. Point number three, Jesus ministers through and provides for 
his true disciples, verses 10 to 13. And fourth, we will look at the fact that Jesus ignores superficial worship of false disciples. Jesus ignores the superficial worship of false disciples as revealed for, through verses 14 and 15. Point number one. Jesus attracts hostile enemies and false disciples. Now, verse one, we see after these things. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, Jesus always, the name of Jesus always draws attention, be it good, bad, or indifferent. The name of Jesus Christ demands attention. If the response is good, it's usually by the, the divine work of God in the heart of man or woman. If it's bad, you usually see hostility towards Christ or towards those who are Christ. Another response is that of indifference, the half-hearted, the fence-sitters. One foot in the world, one foot in the faith. They profess Jesus Christ, but they're not truly Christ. Only He knows who His really are. They're out on the fringes. Jesus departed from those who despised and rejected Him, the religious Jews of His day, those who grew in hostility towards Him, those who pursued to kill Him. He heads north. And it was after the events of chapter 5 that are the things and which caused him to head north. He goes forward, he goes up, he heads north, he's into Galilee, he begins to minister there, and as he's ministering, he crosses the Sea of Tiberias. Now in Old Testament times, the Sea of Galilee was called the Sea of Kinnereth, or in the Hebrew, Yom Kinneret, because of its shape, which means lyre, L-Y-R-E. Stringed instrument, the harp class. If you look at the shape of the lake, it looks like a harp. Let's look at the map of your Bible. In around 20 to 30 AD, Herod Antipas founded a city on the west shore, and he called it Tiberius, naming it after the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar. And the name change was not common, in popular manner of speaking, until the end of the century when John penned the gospel. So John, therefore, adds the name by which it was known then is that of Tiberias. And that is the sea, or the lake, really, in which he got into a boat and crossed over with his disciples. Now, the miracle we're going to look at took place about six months to a year after the events of chapter 5. Now, we've just spent weeks in chapter 5. And as you recall, chapter 5 begins with, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, that could have been the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been in October. Could have been the Feast of the Passover, which would have been in April. We don't know for sure. But the events of chapter 6 are about one year before the crucifixion of the Lord. Now, the details as to the ministerial work of Christ in the area of Galilee, which is really the gap between chapter 5 and chapter 6, are revealed through the other Gospels, the Synoptics. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, we see the Galilean ministry of Christ. Mark chapter 1 through 7, and also Luke chapter 4 through 9. All of which took place between chapter 5, verse 47 of John, and chapter 6, verse 1. So to fill in the gaps, you have to go read the other Gospel accounts. And we will allude to those this morning. 
But this is a dominant miracle that reveals the creative character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as he turned water to wine, back in chapter 2, he turned water to wine without soil. He turned water to wine without a vine, without a grape. Here, he creates bread without a field. Bread without grain. He multiplies fish that never swam. It's creative power that only God has. So this is the miracle that sets the stage for a great departure of the superficial followers known as the masses that are following Christ at this point. This chapter reveals the identity of Jesus as being the very bread of life. And it records the growing rejection motivated by unbelief. Rejection is always motivated by unbelief. Apparent belief lasts only for a season, as we will see. But when the heat is turned up and opposition is imposed on an individual regarding their profession of faith, there's either true conversion that's revealed or they're out. They're gone. Now this miracle is very familiar to you all, as I said, but even so there's some great applicable truths that will benefit us all this morning as we move from the hostile opponents of chapter 5 to the superficial followers in chapters in verses 2 through 5 rather here we have false disciples then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased now the verb tense would be more accurate if it were translated as follows and a great multitude was following him because they were seeing his miracles. They continued to follow because he was doing a continual work of healing, you see. Miraculous works. Ongoing works. And they followed him not so much because they wanted to obey him. Not because they were willing to fall down, repent, and believe in the person of Christ. They were following because of the works. Remember at the Passover in John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. So this great multitude didn't actually believe in him in a saving way. They didn't trust in Christ. They wanted it because he could care for their medicinal, physical comfort desires. The reason for their following Jesus was simply because of the signs he performed. In Matthew chapter 4, in the Galilean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, just prior to the Sermon on the Mount, verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went out through all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Jesus had literally expelled disease from Galilee. Now initially, signs attract both true and false disciples. And the majority of people all will covet a free lunch and free health care. Amen? That's what he was providing. Free food, great health care system. There's even no copay here. 
But miracles and the demonstration of power are always fertile ground for false disciples. Anytime you see these TV evangelists who have these crazy, whacked out, supposed healing ministries, false prophets produce false converts. Be very careful who you learn from. But a question for us this morning, brothers and sisters. Everyone is here this morning. Everyone sits in chairs. Many people sit in chairs throughout churches today. And everyone is there, at least outwardly, supposing or professing to follow Christ. Outwardly. Question, what is your reason for following Christ? Is it the product of an inward desire that is birthed by God, by the saving grace of Jesus Christ, through His shed blood on the cross? On your behalf? Is it a product of having been forgiven of all shameful sin, past, present, and future? Is it a following that is eager to know Jesus Christ sincerely in order to follow Him obediently? Or do you follow outwardly for the hope of eternal earthly comfort? Monetary or materialistic gain. I hope it's not merely outward this morning. Many seek Christ outwardly. They follow outwardly. They think by showing up to church that Jesus will keep the puzzle pieces of their life together so that their life as they know it won't fall apart. You know, Jesus isn't going to commit himself to a crowd that superficially seeks him today any more than he did those who gathered around him in Jerusalem in chapter 5. That gathered around him in his Galilean ministry that's going on in chapter 6. Or those who sought him at Passover back in chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 24 it says this, remember they followed him because of the signs he was performing, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You know what was in these men and women? Fickleness. Spiritual deadness. These are your garden variety, uncommitted, false converts that gathered in mass to outwardly follow Jesus Christ. An outward pursuit. So here's the masses. Verse 3, Jesus went up on a mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now this miracle comes at the latter portion of the ministry of Christ, which is about three and a half years long. But this is why the crowds were there. Now at this point, there wasn't even time for Jesus and his disciples to eat. They were ministering to people after people after people. They'd been people to death at this point. So Jesus wanted to get them away. He wanted to take his disciples away. He wanted them to rest physically. He wanted to fill them up spiritually. We read from Mark's account, chapter 6, verse 31, and he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. That's ministry. It's very important that people who are truly involved in ministry... Truly, you must rest. Very important. Mark also records that as they went out secretly, the masses followed them. 
It wasn't because of a repentance and a love and a desire for Christ, the person of Christ, because in verse 26 of John 6, he says, you seek me not because you saw the signs and believed, but because you ate of the loaves and were what? Filled. You ate of the loaves and were filled. That's why you seek me, he says. So when Jesus enters this boat, he goes across the Sea of Tiberias, the masses spot him from the hillsides and they run around the north shore of Galilee keeping their eye on the boat in an attempt to meet him wherever his destination was to be, you see. These were thrill-seekers, self-centered, looking for the next handout. They weren't concerned about the condition their sin condition, their heart, their soul. It was outward. So Jesus and his disciples arrive on shore before the crowds get there. He takes them up on a hillside. Now some commentators at this point, they write, how beautiful it is that these so desperately sought out Christ. I don't know how they come to some of these conclusions when it's, the scripture reveals itself. You know, it's easy to follow and honor someone who takes care of your every physical need, isn't it? When they were following him, not because they had a godly sorrow, which the Bible says leads to repentance and submission to Christ. This was them waiting for the next handout. How do we know that? Later on in the chapter, chapter 6, Jesus begins to teach about the price that they're going to pay to follow him. It's going to cost greatly. His teaching gets very difficult because it begins to just poke at the heart, you see. Motives are revealed at that point. Verse 66, verse 66 of John 6 says, They went back and they walked with him no more. So this wasn't a group of people that were seeking Christ because they wanted a heart change and they knew that he was the Savior and the Master of the world that was promised throughout the Old Testament. They wanted what he would give. Chapter 5, Jesus gives a miracle followed by a declaration of who he is. Jesus crosses the lake here with his disciples to get away. And also what was going on here, Matthew chapter 14 tells us that John the Baptist had just been beheaded. The disciples went, they took his body, they buried him, they came back and Jesus was informed. So because of that also which was going on under the sovereign framework of God, he takes them away, you see. That would have been devastating to them. So here's Jesus ministering to his own, ministering to those that are closest to him, and then you have the masses following. Verse 4, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Now here we have an indicator of duration here, a note of time showing another reason for these massive crowds. See, it was, it was Jewish law that stated that all men, age 12 and up, must go to Jerusalem during every major feast. So they would journey up to Jerusalem where they were coming from the north, the south, the east, whatever direction you would always travel upward. The holy city, it was elevated. So you would go up to Jerusalem and they would have their families with them as well, many of them. So you had this large mass of people gathering and moving towards Jerusalem. Jesus sees them. Look, verse 5. Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing the great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So Jesus sees these crowds swelling along the shore, gathering at the foot of the hill. Jesus looked over the people and his heart goes out to them. 
here we see the compassion of Christ. Not only for true disciples, but also for false disciples. Mark also notes that when the Lord, when the Lord saw the crowd, that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. See, what Jesus does here is exactly what the prophet Ezekiel proclaimed in Ezekiel 34.11. Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. I will feed them in good pasture, and their folds shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. So here, Jesus acts as the shepherd of God's people, just like Moses was to the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. According to the other gospel accounts, he ministered to the people speaking about the kingdom. His main concern was not to feed them and heal them, it was to speak about the kingdom. His kingdom. What Christ was providing for this mass group of people, believer or unbeliever, is what is referred to as common grace. The common grace that they experienced is the common grace that the entire world receives day after day after day. The sun shines upon the righteous just as it does upon the wicked as the rain falls and so on. Marriage, the blessing of children, believer and unbeliever alike benefit by the common grace of Almighty God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father. Sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It is this common grace that we, believers in Christ, are also to have towards all people. As sons of our Father in heaven. Now, God's people have the general responsibility to help and relieve the suffering of those who are outside of Christ. We have that responsibility. This is what Christ did. That He's our example. This is what we're to do. Christian fellowship, however, we have a special responsibility to help brothers and sisters in Christ first. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially, or primarily, to those who are of the household of faith. Who's of the household of faith? Sinners saved by grace. Those who are in the true church. This is just a building, as I've said before. I don't know who's really in the church here or not. Who's, in other words, who's truly in Christ. But the true church is an invisible church, really, for the most part. You can sit in your car at the stoplight. You don't know if the guy next to you or the woman next to you is truly saved and they don't, any more than they know whether or not you're saved. You have to spend time with one another to see fruit of the Spirit in one's life in the fellowship of the brethren. But this kind of common grace that God has for the world is going to run out. There's an end to it. Because Christ, as stated in chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 of John, is going to come back to judge the evil and the good. The evil and the good. And the only good to be found in anyone is to be found in Jesus Christ. If you're not in Christ, you have no good. Did you know that? If you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you're still evil. You're still in your sin. 
No one can do good enough to meet God's standard because God's standard to get to heaven is absolute perfection. You have to be perfect, sinless to step into heaven. Or, repent before the living God of the universe in response to God's gracious gift to where the perfect, sinless, flawless, holy life of Christ is placed upon your account. As he went to the cross for those who would believe in him and all of their sins were imputed or placed upon him as though he committed them, all of them. So here from point one we see that Jesus attracts, not only does he draw, not, not only does he draw true believers, but he also attracts false converts. Always has, always will. It leads us to point number two, verses six through nine. Jesus always tests, he puts to the test his true disciples. Testing of our faith. Verse 6. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. What was the test? Asking in verse 5, where, where shall we buy bread that they may eat? That was the test. Now, Philip was the quiet one. He was a quiet disciple. He never had much to say. You know, it's been said that optimists see things, optimists see the glass is half full, pessimists see it as half empty. The truth of that statement is, is they're both correct. Amen? It is half full. It is half empty. The truth, another truth is that an optimist always sees opportunities. Whereas a pessimist focuses on the obstacles. Philip, if you remember, in one sense, Philip was an optimist. By God's grace, he recognized Jesus as the Messiah back in chapter 1 and he went and shared that with Nathaniel. Come and follow. We found the Christ. In another sense, he was a pessimist. And on occasion, he would fail to see what Christ would bring about despite the obstacles. And I think we all wander in both camps, don't we? Now and again. So Jesus knew all along what he was going to do here, but he wanted to test Philip's faith. Even though he had witnessed Jesus turn water into wine out of nothing... He resorts to natural thinking here. How often are we guilty of such faithless thinking? Time after time after time, Christ does this divine work in your life and through your life, and then we're met with another test because tests are the only way you're going to grow. It's the only way I'm going to grow. See, Philip needed to be tested, just like you, just like me. So God brings about tests in lives of believers to prove something. And guess what? It's not to prove anything to Him. He's sovereign. This is to prove to you and to me where we're at in regard to our profession of faith, you see. How else are we going to grow? We won't. A Christian cannot grow in faith and trust in Christ without being put to the test. It's impossible because the test of trust in the believer reveals a fruit known as the fruit of patience. The fruit of patience. James chapter 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all what? Joy. This is where, now the, the flesh will not count trials as joy. Did you know that? Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. You ever have a friend with a rah-rah friend? Come on, let's count it all joy, brother, sister. It's the mature in Christ who truly can. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect what? Work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, there's a reason why mature, seasoned Christians are so calm and have such great patience. When trials come their way, they know from experience that it's the refining work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, just because someone has known Christ for 20-some years doesn't mean they're mature, by the way. I was talking to someone recently who's been a Christian for, I think, 22 years. The most immature Christian I know. And man, does he know some scripture. Infantile. Very immature. How does he God working in his life? Some breaking will come along the way, won't it? It's the only way we're going to grow. And God is never going to test you solely within the realm of your personal comfort level. He's going to stretch it. He's going to pull you outside of it, you see. He's going to do it. He's going to test us beyond that level of trust so that we can step into a deep-rooted trust in Him through experience of that trial. You have to trust in the authority and the assurance of His Word. See, everything goes back to the Word. Amen, brothers and sisters? It goes back to the Word. What does the Word say? What does it mean by what it says? And how do I apply the truth of Scripture to my life now in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this temptation? Now, God comes with a trial. The enemy comes and your flesh rises up and it turns into a temptation. A temptation to trust who? To trust self. To dishonor God. To discredit God. God has it as a trial to stretch your faith. What I don't want to do is listen to myself, right? Don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself. If you listen to yourself, you will go mad and you will bear... F the flesh will rise up. You want to speak to yourself. You want to speak truth to yourself. You must know the truth. You must memorize the truth. And in the midst of trials, you speak truth. In your mind, you meditate on Scripture. And then we trust in what the living active word says. You will come out the other side refined and strengthened. Refiner's fire. You put gold in the fire. It melts it down. Silver in the fire. It melts it down. What rises to the top? The dross. All the impurities in the precious metal rise to the top. They scrape it off. And what do you have? Pure gold. Liquefied gold. Pure silver. God is purging out of you and He's purging out of me impurities. Sinful impurities. And He's going to stretch your faith just as he did here. No true child of God is going to skate through life without trials. It's the proving ground of one's faith, rooted in Christ, which is the product of saving faith. So in response to the test, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little now there was a problem here. People were traveling for miles to find Jesus. They had all this anticipation. They certainly didn't pack food, provision for the day or days in which they followed him around the time of Passover. Out in the hot sun all day. They would have been tired. They would have been hungry. So Philip's response here was the typical human response which is common to every single one of us. He's thinking on the level of the marketplace. The natural world. What's our answer to so many things? What is it? Money. How much does it cost to fix that problem, right? Well, we can fix it. What's it cost? You know it's easy to write a check. 
You know, when people, in, in my years of experience in ministry, people will come and have a financial problem, dilemma. And they come and they're seeking money. You know, you have to be very careful not just to cut a check because you're a church and they're a member. Because God may be doing a work in their life of which He's trying to, to bring them to a next level of trust and understanding. Maybe it's better stewardship. So it's easy to cut a check. That's not the answer to everything. It's faith and trust in what the work of the Holy Spirit is doing in and through the believer's life. Now, his calculations here would have been accurate, but they were pointless here. Because all they did was produce statistics to show what couldn't be done, you see. 200 denarii worth of bread, it's not going to do. It's not sufficient. Now, a denarius was approximately, seven, it's about 17 cents. And one denarii was the day's wage for an unskilled laborer. Now, if a man worked six days a week, 200 denarii would represent about eight months' pay. Now, this is just speculation on my part, but perhaps this is amount, the amount in which they had in their treasury. Remember who their treasurer was? It was Judas. So maybe they inquired of Judas, how much do we got in the box? Perhaps. 200 denarii. Wasn't enough. No matter what, there was no way possible, naturally speaking, that we were going to feed upward of fifteen to 20,000 people. The text says that there was 5,000 men. Matthew and the other accounts tell us that not only were there men, but with women and children in addition to the 5,000 men. They counted the heads of men here. So we're talking 10, 15, 20,000 people. So regardless of their financial situation, Philip was not thinking of a miracle at all, was he? He simply estimated the resources that were available and then he gives up in despair. The Lord's question is designed here to confront Philip with a predicament that had no human solution. God's going to work in your life and he's going to work in my life to bring us to the next level of faith that there's no human solution to the problem. You ever received a check or a bill unexpected? Something that happened to surface from years ago and you have no ability to pay it? or a problem, relational issues, relational problems, things of that nature, there's nothing you can do, naturally speaking, to fix the problem. It's going to drive you to your knees. So the question is for believers. Where do we go when trials like this are placed into our life? Many people go to the phone instead of to the throne, don't they? It's easy to pick up the phone and call, hey, I got this issue, I got this problem. What we want to do is we want to become dependent upon the Word of God, upon our relationship with Christ, be driven to our knees in first response, prayer. Prayer. If we're dependent upon God, it'll be revealed by prayer, our prayer life. A lot of times we just like to chit-chat about what our problems are, don't we? We never enter into the throne room. It's just to the phone we go. We become complainers, whiners. So here there's a seemingly hopeless predicament, financially speaking. Now, the other gospel writers tell us that the disciples advised the Lord, okay, mistake, advising the Lord, you never do that. They advised the Lord to send the multitudes away. It was drawing near, it was towards the end of the day, send them away. Now, they had elected themselves to become the decision makers, 
Well, we're going to soon find out that they became waiters. They distributed the bread. And there's many people in churches today that they want to tell the preacher and the elders what to do. And they're oftentimes short on discernment. They become the decision makers when they ought to be out doing the work of the ministry, witnessing for the Lord, proclaiming the gospel, passing the living bread of life to those who have no bread. But instead, they get all stirred up and they want to tell leadership how to do the ministry. Thank God we have none like that here. It's just an example of what we'll never want to become. Amen? We have a great, a great body here. As young as we are, we have a great body. On the other hand, you have those faithful, quiet servants who just continue to serve faithfully. You don't hear a peep out of them. They just serve and they serve and they serve. When they have resources, they bring it before the Lord for the glory of God. You don't hear a peep out of them. Such a man was the quiet brother of Peter. Brother of Peter likely lived under the shadow of Peter. Peter, as you know, was very over-enthusiastic. It's said that Peter was the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. You know, he would shoot from the hip. Peter was a guy, you know, instead of ready, aim, fire, it's ready, fire, and then aim, right? He's that was kind of, he was triple A personality, that brother. Look at verse 9, or 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, that's how he's identified as Simon Peter's brother. He said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So here, Andrew brings forward a kid with a sack lunch. Five barley loaves, two small fish. Barley loaves were the inexpensive bread of the poor. They would have been very small. These were not Weber's loaves, okay? These were not the loaf that grandma makes and put in the window. He didn't roll up with five loaves under his arms and then two walleye or something. These are very small barley breads. It would be like a cracker with a little sardine on top. And they would take these little fish, they were pickled fish, and they would spread it on top, or they would just lay it on top. And that, These were like hors d'oeuvres. That's what he had. What are they among so many? What an example to bring what you have before the Lord. Amen? You just bring what you have. And let Him multiply it. You begin where you are. You move with what you have. And you do that by what? Faith. By faith. And if the church would just simply do that, you could eliminate all these expensive programs, all these supposed expert conferences, none of which today, unfortunately, not, not none, but n most are not focused upon the Word of God. For me to go to a really good conference, for me to go to a, a gathering of pastors, I, I like have to travel like to the east unless I go up here to Los Angeles, to Grace Community. I was in Alabama a couple weeks ago for just that. But most of the pastors' conferences, quote-unquote pastors' conferences, uh, they, they pour in millions and millions of dollars to come up with these grand ideas in their mind of how to do ministry. creative ministry. I heard of one flyer that said, be creative in your preaching and there's a box of Crayola crayons in the front of the flyer. We do verse by verse here. This is the text. This is what it means by what it says because I'm not going to condescend to you. You don't want to be treated like children. Amen? So many of God's people today are be treated like children. 
being told stories. The Spirit of God begins to work on them. They've got to get out because they're not growing. Sad. There's a church that has spent millions of dollars for decades. They are the flagship. Let me tell you what, this is in Chicago. They are the flagship of the seeker-sensitive movement. And I cannot tell you how many churches have attempted to model after this very large, tens of thousands of member church. They came out this past week, maybe the last two weeks, made a statement publicly and said that everything that we have spent millions of, po- millions of dollars over the last couple decades, we've been wrong. What we should have been doing is teaching people how to read the Word, how to interpret the Word, how to teach the Word. Praise God for that. We'll wait and see what they do. But praise God. I'm sure we got all kinds of little followers, you know, wringing their hands. What are we going to do now? Let's wait and see what they do. Look, teach the Word of God. Study it first and then teach it. Amen? And you will see your people grow. You know, the disciples of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years did not have electronic media, television, internet, and whatever else. You know what they had? They had the most powerful communication ever. It's this. Prayer and proclamation. Proclaim the truth and pray. And watch God use you as an instrument of His power. An instrument of His power. Now up to this point, neither Philip nor Andrew have marked very well on the great scale of faith. Amen? Philip would have probably received an F. Andrew, perhaps a D. But at this point, notice the grace of God. Jesus just simply moves on to stretch their faith. See, the grace of Christ. He didn't reprimand them here. You know what he does do, though? Later on, he does reprimand them. Jesus feeds the 5,000 here. Matthew, or uh, Mark chapter 8, um, he had fed uh, 4,000, different occasion. Okay, and now what had happened is that they got into a boat. Now, the Pharisees opposed Christ again, and they wanted to seek a sign. They saw the feeding of the 4,000, but they sought a sign. In other words, a sign of multiplying food for 4,000, 5,000, 15,000, 20,000 wasn't enough for them. They wanted to see Jesus make the stars dance around or something. So they oppose Him. So, again, He leaves. He gets into a boat, departs to the other side. Now, the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And then he charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, Is it because we have no bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you have left? Did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? You see, God will show us something once, twice, Three times. And here we see the divine work of God in our lives over and over again. And then here again, another situation arises. What do we do? We doubt Him. We doubt Him. But here He is gracefully designed to stretch the faith of these disciples. He 
here we see true believers will be tested. You will be tested. It's the only way to grow. That leads us to point number three, verses 10 through 13. Jesus now also, he ministers through and provides for his disciples. He ministers through and provides for his own. Verse 10, Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. So in spite of the large crowd, Jesus proceeds in, very, in an orderly fashion. He has them sit down. Mark 6 records that he had them sit down in groups of 50s and 100s. God does things decently and in order. And we want to do the best that we can with, within the body of Christ to do things decently in order with what God provides for us for this season of our lives. You know, we're getting ready to purchase a building. We're in the process of purchasing a building. We need to be good stewards of that place. It's going to take the body to do that. In all facets of the ministry, we want to be good stewards. We want to do things decently. We want to do them in order. What an example. Jesus instructs his disciples now, make them sit down. Now, imagine what they must have been thinking at this point. 200 denarii is not going to take care of this. Five loaves, two fish is not going to take care of this. What's that among so many? So then he says, make him sit down. Ay, 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 what's he going to do? What are we going to do? Right? But notice. You know, first of all, you know, we should be so grateful that God's blessings are dispensed according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace and, and not according to the deficiency of our faith. Amen? Because if God only blesses your faith and my faith, you know what we get done? Nothing. His grace abounds. They were faithless at this point. And he, make, he gives them a command. Make them sit down. The beautiful thing about this, though they were faithless, they stepped out in obedience. They were obedient to his command. You know, a lot of people, when they hear about the abundant, ever-abounding grace of God and they profess Jesus Christ, they just continue on in their professed faith with this careless, God-dishonoring life and lifestyle. And they think in their mind, oh, God will bless my mess. I heard preacher talk about God's abundant, abounding grace. I'm just going to continue on like I am, just flippant, and so on. On the other hand, the true child of God melts under his continual mercy, his ever-abounding grace. It drives you to your face in thankfulness, or it should, amen? He's so faithful when we're so faithless. The faith of the disciples has failed here, but they step out in obedience. You know, the Lord's patient. There's no harsh rebuke here for either Philip or Andrew. He gives them this further test. He says, make them sit down. Test number two. And this test is for obedience. Do you, do you obey out of the love for Christ? Is there a desire to obey within you when no one else is around? When no one else can see the fruit of your labors or the fruit of your life? When the Holy Spirit speaks to your mind? Is there a desire to obey because of your love for Him? And the only reason you love Him is because He first what? Loved us. That's where we want to grow to. I'll begin with myself. That's where we want to grow. When you obey like that, you step out like that, you will see God empower you to stand up in the midst of the test and He's never going to test you beyond what you're able to bear. Amen? Because this miracle here that He goes on to do, 
he distributes through the disciples. And this miracle is not for the crowds, this miracle is for his disciples. They provide for the multitudes, the masses, but it's primarily for these disciples. He uses weak, faithless instruments for his glory. That's what he does. We see that historically. Simple things. He used the simple cry of a baby, Moses, in the reeds to grab hold of the attention of Pharaoh's daughter, of whom she would take and raise in Pharaoh's house. And 80 years later, God would use a shepherd's staff of Moses to do mighty works in Egypt. We see the course of history turned at that point, don't we? Simple instrument. He used a slingshot of a little shepherd boy, David, to bring down the great Philistine. He used Balaam's donkey to preach. He used the jawbone of a donkey to kill 1,000 men. And simple instrument in the hands of one of his own provided supernatural power. He used a widow with a handful of meal to, to sustain one of his prophets. And then he finally uses also a little child to teach his own disciples about humility. Remember that? When Jesus brought a little child into the midst of them to teach them about humility because they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, who was going to sit on the right, who was going to sit on the left of Christ when he sets up his kingdom. And here the Lord uses five loaves, two small fish, from a young boy led by a disciple of little faith to feed the great multitude. He'll do the same thing in your life. He will use what He wills for His glory alone. And that's what it's for. It's for His glory. We just reap the benefits along the way, don't we? It's for His glory. He's ready to use you in the same way. You know, perhaps you're weak. Perhaps you feel faithless. Perhaps you feel as though, well, I can't do anything because I lack knowledge. I don't have my theology down. I don't have the doctrine down. Don't wait. Move. And He will use you. He will utilize you. You know what He'll use you for? To confound the wise. Because He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has what? Chosen. And the things which are not to bring about nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. There's no man or woman that can glory in the presence of Jesus Christ. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, in righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. It's His person and power in and through you that confounds the wise. You're not going to convert anybody. I'm not going to convert anybody. It's the proclaimed message of Christ through you by the power of the Holy Spirit that converts people. We proclaim it and we pray. Verse 11, And Jesus took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish. How much? As much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. So notice Jesus begins with thanks. He blesses, the, he blesses the Father. Not the food. 
Think of this story every time you pray over your food. You know, we take for granted here in America, you know, you just roll down to In-N-Out or roll to the grocery store, or you go to coffee. It's just, everything's just easy. Let an earthquake happen. Let a hurricane wash out a city. Life as you know it stops. Then you'll have to begin to pray for your food. You're not rolling in anywhere to get it. Amen? We do well to remember, if someone has written this little cute thing, I'm not into cute things, but this is kind of cute. Back of the bread is snowy flour. Back of the flour, the mill. And back of the mill is the field of wheat, the rain, and the Father's will. Let there be a breakdown in the process. Things will stop as we know. So all things can come to a halt with one tragedy. So Jesus takes here what's available and he multiplies it in abundance. He, did he need the disciples here? No, he did not need the disciples. He could, could have provided a nice little sanitary dish for everyone as they sat down, something in which they could fold up and, and, and just throw away. Just like on an airplane. They give you your food, you eat it, you close it up, put it in the bag when they come by, put up your tray table, we're good to go, we're going to land now. Right? He didn't. He chose to use his faithless disciples. They had little faith because they had them all sit down. And now he distributes supernaturally. First of all, the miracle takes place by his hands. Okay? Not the disciples. It's his hands that multiplies the food. He, in turn, distributes to the disciples. They distribute to the people. It's the way he works. He works in spite of us, but not apart from us. God works in spite of us. He does not need you. He does not need me. But he will not. He sovereignly has chosen to not work apart from us. How gracious is that? That's amazing grace. These disciples, they obeyed, as I said. You know, your faith will not grow outside of obedience. Faith becomes stagnant when obedience dies. Are you stagnant in your faith? Is your growth and maturity at a standstill? Have you leveled off? You know, so many Christians, so many people who profess Christ, they claim, oh, I just love Jesus. How, how many, I just love the Lord. But you're living in radical disobedience. You're an adulterer, you're a fornicator, and you say you're a Christian, but I just love Jesus. We must be reminded of His Word. John chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and what? Keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, obedience re reveals a true love for Christ, and it's proof that salvation has taken place. And what does he do? He manifests himself to you, to the believer. Manifest is to exhibit in person to disclose by words by way of a personal bond. And you know what that bond is? That's a union you have in Christ. That union is unbreakable. You can't break your union if you're in Christ. But we can mess up our communion, can't we? 
A lot of people who think they're in, they're not. Their life in no way reveals it. So he commands them, make them sit down. And this leads to them distributing his miraculous provision. And in the end, not only does he provide here for the masses, he also provides for his own. Verse 12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So the point of gathering up here is another reminder of God's over and abundant and ever abounding provision. Above and beyond. What we could think or imagine. Amen? As soon as you think that you've exhausted the grace of God, what does He do? He provides more, doesn't He? He graces you over and over and over. You know, I look at my own life and I think, man... Not that we deserve anything, but you know, sometimes we get caught up thinking, well, you know, I've been serving the Lord and God used me here and God used me here. And you just think you deserve so much sometimes or just flesh just rears up, you know. But then when you're down deep in that valley of despair, you've been disobedient, you've, you've grieved the Spirit perhaps in your own life, and then He just shows abundant, abundant, ever-abounding grace. As soon as you think that you've taken all that He can provide, He provides more. That's the loving Savior we serve. He provided them above and beyond. Amazing. So he, he tells them, gather this up. You know, this is not some keep Galilee green campaign. This is not planet in peril like CNN is tripping about. Now we are to be good stewards of that which the Lord has given us. He's given us this earth. We're to be good stewards of it, no doubt. But I do not believe that is the reason why he tells them to gather up that which remained here. I think the point here is that God promises to provide the necessities of life for His children. Enabling us to seek His will and His purpose first. Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these what? All these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, seeking God's will first produces trust. You know what happens to worry? Just disappears. Anxiety just goes away. Because you're praying. You know how to get rid of anxiety? Pray continuously. Be anxious for? Nothing. But all things by prayer and supplication with what? With thanksgiving make your requests be made known to God. And then the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the remedy for anxiety praying without ceasing seeking first the kingdom verse 13 therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of 5 barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten this is most likely 12 baskets for 12 disciples to provide food for the next day this is doggy bags for those brothers to go on and continue on in in, in ministry doggy bags are cool you go out to American restaurants and they give you a ton of food you walk out of there, a family of four, you pay 80 to 100 bucks for a meal these days. It's crazy. You, do, you, you walk out usually with a little something for tomorrow. God's, I believe God's making provision for 12 baskets for 12 disciples who earlier didn't have time to even eat. You trust God? You trust His Word? You trust that He'll provide for your needs? Not your lustful earthly desires, but your needs. Food, shelter, clothing, 
He promises to provide those for his, those who are His. Seek first the kingdom of God, all these things. You know what these things are? Things are your needs. Not a mini movie house in your, in your house. You know? Not a Ferrari. I'm talking about stuff. I'm talking about needs. That's the promise. His grace is sufficient. He provides for His own. That leads us to point number four, verses 14 and 15. Jesus provides for his own, and also he neglects superficial worship of false disciples, as I wrap up here. Verse 14, And then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Which is to say, this is a prophet as revealed through the words of Moses back in Deuteronomy 18.15 that said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. The kind of Messiah that they were looking for. The messianic kingship that people were anticipating and desiring, desiring to lay hold of Jesus for was a political kingship. To throw off the oppression of Rome. Free food, free health care. That's a king I'll follow, they said. That's the king they were looking for. They wanted someone who was going to bring down manna from heaven. John 6 Verse 31. That's what they wanted. You'll see it in a couple weeks. You can look it up. Verse 15. Therefore, okay, this is the kind of king they wanted. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself, what? Alone. You know, Jesus did indeed accept the title, King of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 49. John's Gospel. You know why? Because he was. Because he was the king of Israel. But he refused the superficial worship of thrill seekers. The outward worship of man. I mean, this was the temptation that Satan laid before him in Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these things I will give you what? If you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So if the eternal king of kings wasn't going to make, be made king on Satan's terms, he wasn't going to be made king in terms of the masses either. Upon recognizing Jesus as Messiah, rather than desiring to follow him out of desperate spiritual need, they attempted to use him for their own purpose. Many people do that today. They want to use Christ for their own purpose. They have no concern for the sin in their life and their need of a Savior and to serve out of obedience because He first loved them. They wanted Him to go to work for them. To work according to their program. To serve according to their schedule, you see. Many today are of the same mind. They want to follow the Christ of comfort. The Messiah of materialism. The Savior of self-satisfaction. They want a Jesus of no demands. Don't put any demands on me to pick up my cross daily and follow you. So the language of contemporary Christianity is much the same. It's very man-centered. Modern Christianity has become, the, become centered on personal fulfillment. Be all that you can be now, right? So belief, as we close, for real this time. <laughs> belief is not merely an agreement of facts in the head. It is also a craving for God in the heart. 
We have to believe the facts, but the facts ought to lead us to have a craving for God in the heart, the God that's revealed through Scripture. When you receive Jesus Christ on His terms, He becomes the satisfier of your soul. Are you full of anxiety? You feel like something's missing in your life? Let me tell you what. If you're a believer, what's missing is probably your trust level and that of obedience. Take that mustard seed of faith and lay it down before Christ. If you're not in Christ, the reason your life is upside down and the reason that there's something missing is because you don't have the source of life. You don't have Christ. You can either be judged for your own sin or you can receive the judgment that was placed upon Christ on the sinner's account. You can bow and submit your life to Him today. You take that up with Him. Before we judge the masses of chapter 6, we should ask ourselves, do we do the same things? You know, have you ever become angry, impatient, disappointed with God because He didn't do as you requested or as you demanded? You ever demand God? Don't answer this. How many times have you demanded something to God? We need to be spiritual around here. How many, t- how many times do we demand something of Him? And then when He doesn't come through, we become embittered towards Him. He didn't work according to my schedule. He didn't work according to my program. And this story teaches us the kind of relationship that we're to have with God. There's no need to make Him king by force. There's no reason to make Him king by our will. He is king. He's not some politician that we elect. Jesus Christ is not Christ because we elected Him to be so. He's Lord of Lords. He's King of Kings regardless of what anyone thinks or says. We are privileged, brothers and sisters, to serve the living God of the universe like these faithless men did. And God turned these men into spiritual giants, men of great faith. Because you know what they did? They went on and God used them in a great way and they all paid for it with their life. And the one who penned this gospel, John, was isolated on an island when he wrote his later writings, the book of Revelation. Today is the day in which we recognize the persecuted church throughout the world. You know what happens to the church when it's persecuted? You know what's revealed? is its purity. Because when persecution is set against the church, physical opposition where people's lives are taken for, taken for professing the name of Christ, you know what happens to superficial believers? Those on the surface, those like the masses, you know where they go? They leave then you have a pure church because all the sin is purged out. And there's people around the world today who make the same profession that you make, the same profession that I make, and they're losing their heads and they're losing their children. Their wives are being raped and their backs are being laid open. And yet we want to make Jesus our servant. May we humble ourselves before the living God of the universe and see that He has chosen you and He has chosen me to be channels of blessing. His power, according to His grace, for His glory and your edification. Increased faith. I actually pray that there will be persecution against the church. I do. Because it's going to wake up a lot of people who are on the fence, so to speak. I don't believe there's anything as a fence sitter. You're either saved or you're not saved. 
Because my biggest concern is for the condition of the church of Jesus Christ. And I hope yours is also. May we pray accordingly and may we serve by His grace and His Spirit for His glory. So it is a privilege, brothers and sisters. I'm going to ask that you stand and pray with me as we close this morning. We're going to pray on behalf of the persecuted church. Our Lord and our God, we come before you together as a unified body of believers saved by your grace, covered by your blood, sanctified, justified, awaiting the day of glorification, the day that you bring us home, the day that we will see you as you are, and when we see you as you are, we will then, by your grace, become like you. Lord, until that time, we we pray for your grace to abound in our lives. I pray for your richest blessing upon every believer in this room here this, this afternoon that your grace would be increased in abundance to reveal their faith for your glory. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses. Help us in our unbelief. And Lord, for those around the world who are suffering great persecution, who make the same claims as we make, who are losing their lives and watching their daughters be raped and killed. God, have mercy, we pray. May they be reminded of the strength, the promises of Scripture, Lord, as they face such persecution. And may we be prayerful and mindful of what they go through. And that we would, under your sovereign hand, operate to the fullest here where you have us for your glory and honor to be proclaimers of the truth prayer warriors for your glory may you bless this church these dear people I thank you for all of them thank you for what you've done in our lives and what you're continuing to do and Lord if there's anyone here today that does not know you perhaps they're deceived in thinking that they do I pray that you convict them to the core I pray that you bring them to the place of a repentant understanding and the price of the cross Transform their lives, we pray by grace today. In Jesus' name, amen.